Welcome to this episode of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. Joining me on the phone from the greatest band to come out of the 80s, Bon Jovi. Right, Alan? Bon Jovi is the greatest band of the 80s, correct? Bonjour, Alain. How are you? Can you hear Bonjour. me? Bonjour. Are you, oh, I, oh, are I you actually hear. stunned that, that I said Bon Jovi? Did you, like, fall like and just go, oh, what the hell? <laughs> no, I, I just for a moment thought he's been at his tipple. He's had a couple of shots before he made a comment like that. He must have. Well, listen, I, I don't drink or do any of that, but I've, I've had the most incredible uh, chicken, uh, caramelized chicken from a, a Chinese restaurant. So I'm a little uh, goofy on that, I think. But no, uh, it's great stuff. But we have Phil X. He has a new single out called Right on the Money. And it is part of the uh, Stupid Good Lookings Volume 2 album coming out later this year that has Tommy Lee from Motley Crue, Liberty DeVito, of course, of Billy Joel's band, Kenny Arnoff of, well, every band, but mostly John Cougar Mellencamp, and Ray Luzier, who has spent time with David Lee Roth, but now drums for Korn. Anyway, right on the money. Well, essentially is right on the money in terms of a rock song. It is a great rock song, great riffage, great stuff. Are you at all familiar with Phil X? Not particularly, but I'm intrigued by the fact that he has um, a cosmic lineup of drummers. Um, obviously, as a guitar player, he knows who drives him. And uh, the better your drummer, the better your guitar player. Absolutely. And, and when you think of Liberty DeVito and all those... Uh, do we call them drum riffs? Let's call them drum riffs for the lack of a better word. But all those drum riffs that he put on those Billy Joel records, I mean, often duplicated but never imitated, right? Or often imitated but never duplicated. Just stunning, stunning drum work. Um, of course, Phil has spent time with Canadian bands, including Triumph. He replaced Rick Emmett for a while and has also done stuff with Avril Lavigne and Our Lady Peace. And if you're not from Canada, you have no idea who Our Lady Peace is. Don't bother looking them up. <laughs> Sorry, I'm not a fan. Oh, wow. Uh, I know, I know. It's it's bitchy Mitchy today. Um, <laughs> <laughs> once in a while you have to be. No, but uh, jokes aside, you had a chance to manage uh, Bon Jovi. They came to you and said, hey, you should be the guy. And you ended up not being the guy. Um, obviously a big career mistake because they are the greatest band to come out of the 1980s. But that said, what happened? What was the story of your brush with fame? Let's call it that. Uh, well, if I may be so bold, let me pick you up on the use of English. Um, you started out by asking me by, by stating I had the chance and I'm not sure that that's the way that I'd express it. Um, what actually happened was I got a phone call from David Geffen. And he said, and, uh, he said I think you should take a meeting with um, John Bon Jovi. And I picked my fights with David Geffen carefully, and this is one I was not going to make into a fight straight away. So I said, okay, fine. You know, I'll, I'll take a meeting with him. And Doc McGee had just been fired, and I just left GNR too 
at that point. Um, so, I'm in my kitchen and the phone rings. And I pick it up and this guy on the other end says, hey, it's John. And I go, John who? And he goes, John Bon Jovi. And I go, fuck off. And put the phone down, thinking it's somebody screwing around with me. And then the phone rings again, and it's, no, no, it's really me. And I'm like, oh, John, I'm sorry. I thought it was somebody screwing around. And he said, can we meet up and have a drink? And I said, well, yeah, we can definitely do that, but I cannot do it right at this moment. Can we, uh, can we pick another time? And he said, oh, okay, sure. You know, call me and we'll set something up. And in that moment, I'd had a semi-intelligent thought. And having been somewhat aware of Doc McGee's tales about working with John, I wanted to see what would happen if I didn't jump immediately when I was whistled. Because I'd heard rumor through Doc that uh, John was a little controlling and demanding. So... I wanted to see what would happen. Well, to try and shorten a, a long and n not very entertaining story, um, we arranged for another time to meet. It wasn't over a cocktail. It was in the office of his business manager, and he had his tour manager sitting there with him. And I walked in and saw this triumvirate, and I went, wow, do I intimidate you? You need backup? to talk to me. Originally, you wanted to go out and have a drink and see if we could be a meeting of minds. Um, I don't think this is for me. And uh, quietly backed out of it and passed. Um, the other thing was, and I have to confess this, is I don't own a Bon Jovi record, which should tell you something. I was not a huge fan of what some people call happy rock. I don't think that all rock has to be miserable or not celebrate life or not have energy or not be spectacular. But there was something about the idea of going to a pizza parlor and asking the girls in the pizza parlor if a song is good or not that I found a little unencouraging. I believe the word is brilliant. I think that's the word you were looking for, brilliant. <laughs> now, now that you've described your uh, uh, biggest career mistake ever, how does that make you feel? Were, were, were you left somewhat empty afterwards knowing that you could have been John Bon Jovi's personal manager, the greatest rock and roll frontman of the 1980s? This I will say. And I can hear people loading up the guns now and pointing them in my direction. If I had a perception of John at that time, I think he wanted to try and elevate um, himself from being seen as an entertainer and that he wanted to be seen an, as an artist, that he wanted to be comparative to Springsteen. And I think that that was what he really wanted. And I'll tell you this. I didn't make the wrong decision. He did. Because if I had worked with him, that's the way I'd have driven him. And I would have got him to being perceived more as an artist than an entertainer. But, you know, have a nice day. He's had a wonderful day. Lots of wonderful paydays. And he's a great entertainer. I still don't have a Bon Jovi album. 
Okay, let me help you with that. Okay, so first you got to buy Slippery When Wet because it's got all the big hits, the Wanted Dead or Alive, Living on a Prayer and stuff, right? That, that, you want to start there. That's, that's a good one. Then you want to work your way over probably to, hmm. Well, maybe what this, was the name of his guitar player? Well, uh, on this show, Phil X. On uh, the, uh, that, that time, uh, Richie on Sambor. Albums. On this, uh, well, on, the, oh, on uh, Slippery When Wet, of course, the one and only Richie Sambor. Right up Who's there. Who's got a better voice? Who's, uh, well, you know what? I, I'm going to actually uh, be very diplomatic and say that the blend of John and Richie singing <laughs> together <laughs> is a sound that you cannot duplicate. John alone and Richie alone are great, but when John and Richie do, do those trade-off vocals or harmonize together, that's right. In that, you know what? That's right on the money. That's exactly where well, it I is. Well, I, I, I figure I've already talked myself out of my visa to New Jersey on this one. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, a lot of great albums. And, and oh, you know, I'm just going to ask you one last thing. Uh, John Bon Jovi, not John Bon Jovi, but Bon Jovi had an album called 2020 that they were supposed to release in May of, of course, 2020. And they've decided to hold it off. And it's not going to come out until probably 2021. They said, if there's no tour, there's no album. Just quickly, as, as a manager, if I say to you, hey, we're going to pull the album and not put it out. Is, is that a little short-sighted? Is that sort of weird? Because you've got a captive audience at home. Uh, it's Bon Jovi. It's not like they're a new band. I'm, I'm pretty sure ticket sales aren't driven by a new single necessarily. Not at this stage in the game. Um, no, but I, I, I do think that we are in a circumstance. And it was, and, and just let me just pivot for a minute. Um, last night I had uh, an unexpected and an unusual pleasure. I actually sat at my computer and I watched a journalist being interviewed by a rock god, which I thought was highly entertaining. And I've got to say the pair of you were enlightening and entertaining and it was really interesting to watch Joe Bonamassa take your role and do it rather well I have to say and I thought you took his role and did it rather well too it's entertaining so I do recommend people look at that um but what were we talking about were we talking about Bon Jovi I've forgotten already well oh, forget we're talking about me now <laughs> uh yeah Joe Bonamassa first of all I taught him everything he knows that's that's well not the guitar part but the interviewing part but I will say this and for those who who don't know what we're talking about uh, Joe Bonamassa the guitarist who was in Black Country Communion and so on and so forth has on YouTube a show called uh, Live from Nerdville featuring Joe Bonamassa and he interviews all kinds of people and if you look at it there's Neil Sean of Journey, there's Paul Stanley of Kiss, and there's Mitch LaFon of, well, Mitch LaFon. Fabulous lineup, I have to say. <laughs> Mitch LaFon of Rock Talk. Of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. But uh, I found that very interesting because when I do an interview, and I've explained this before, I don't write down questions. I do all my research and I get a, a an arc in my head of where I'm going to go and how it's going to go. You know, you got to talk about the new stuff because that's why you're on the phone. So new album, new t-shirt, new lunchbox, new uh, whatever they're, they're, they're slinging. You got to go there first. That's why you're on the phone. Don't forget that. 
But I also have in my head, oh, in 1975, you did this. In 1982, you did that. And I have this stuff floating around. And with Joe, me being on the other side, I had nothing in my head and I had nowhere to go. So if the conversation went slow or whatever, I'd be like, oh, I don't have a plan B. It was just very strange to not have those a script in my head in a sense and and have something to go to and so he's like uh let me talk about uh you know blabbermouth i'm like oh oh okay let me talk about um bands playing to track oh whoa okay and uh that was that that was interesting for me because i'm not used to it that way i'm used to going okay Joe Bonamassa, 12 years old little bb king had an album black country communion blend news but and i'm used to having that 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 arc or that soundtrack going in my head. And it was like, Oh, okay. Well, he had the wheel. I know. He had the wheel and you, and you were sitting in the passenger seat. I know. It was interesting. He was guiding the conversation and and he did it really well. And, uh, it was interesting too, because at one point he was talking about, um, how do you, how do you guide an interview into substance without playing gotcha and playing gotcha is, that, that that's a, that, that that's an unpleasant way to approach somebody that is giving you their time and talking to you. You know, there's a fair exchange there. But it would, it was interesting to uh, to see Joe and his point of view about how do you get to substance. And what I thought was was entertaining was right there in the instance he was getting to substance because he was listening. And then he had one or two questions that he wanted to broach the topic of. But what was, what was good about it was he understands that you must listen and converse. And that the best interviews are not scripted, are not boring and gotcha, but they, are, they become a conversation. And that is when you get people to say things that maybe they'd be a little bit more guarded about in an interview. It's when they feel comfortable and conversational and something seems to be a valid thing to say. That's when you find out, you know, find those little nuggets of people thinking. And that's, that's me as the purpose of a good interview. And let's go and listen to you be a master of your craft. Yes, let us go talk to Bon Jovi, guitarist, the one, the only Canadian, Phil X. We are speaking with the one and only Phil X. Of course, he's the best known for playing with Bon Jovi, but in Canada, we love him for having played with Triumph. <laughs> we love his time in Triumph because we love the Canadian stuff. But bonjour, Phil, as we say in Montreal. How are you? I'm doing great, man. I'm doing Good. great. Um, a lot of stuff going on. It's a, it's a weird time, of course. But at the same time, uh, we're all making the best of it, right? If there's ever been a year to roll with the punches, it's now. Well, we're, we are definitely learning about rolling with the punches. And it's funny because I saw either on your Instagram or on somewhere today, you were posting that you had a, a reminder that you were supposed to be at the L.A. Uh, Staples Center or something tonight or the forum. Yeah, <laughs> that was like, damn it. You know, I, I was talking to John the other day and he goes, I had, I had to take all the reminders out of my calendar because it was bumming me out. And I'm like. Well, it kind of bummed me out, but it, it, for me, it kind of reminds me like, right, this is what I do when the world's normal. And I can't, you kind of need that reminder sometimes, right? Well, yeah, listen, a couple of days ago, I got a reminder uh, that said, you have Ozzy at the, at the Bell Center tonight. And I was like, no, I don't. No, I don't. <laughs> do, do you want to hear about my life? This is funny. Yeah. 
My last time in Montreal was with Bon Jovi, right? And we played the Bell Center because that's just what that that's what just reminded me. And I was staying at the hotel across the street from this club, and my buddy had come in from Toronto so we could hang out. And we're going into the hotel, and sorry, the bar is closed. And I'm like, man, I just want to have a drink with my buddy, right? So we go across the street to this bar where there's a line, and we walk to the the bouncer, and he's like. Yeah, you can't come in with that jacket, and you can't come in with those boots. And I'm like, man, I just, I just, okay, I, I don't drop the name. I'm just not that name dropper guy, right? So I go, man, I just played the Bell Center with Bon Jovi. I just want to come in with my buddy and have a drink. And he's like, prove it. So of course, I got like a hundred photos in my phone of me and John on stage. So I'm like, scrolling. And he goes. Oh, come on right in. And here's my card. Let me know when next time you're in Montreal. It's like, see, sometimes you just got to drop the name. You, you have to. You, you got to use the power, man. You can't always fight it. But uh, speaking of that, because that story's right on the money, the new single is, of course, right on the money. Yes. And what a fucking great song. I mean, it, it, it's not even like, oh, if I listen to it 10 times, I'm going to like this event. The first time out of the box, you listen to it and you go, all right, all right. I like what he's doing here. So yeah, great song. Uh, talk to Thank me you. about that because you were, you were doing this stuff with Chris Lord Alge, who's of course done stuff with Bon Jovi. He did the uh, Have a Nice Day. He's done um, uh, uh, Canadian content. What do we got? Nickelback and uh, some of that other stuff. Yeah. Um, and you, and you got Brent Fitz on this. Talk to me about this song and and where are we going with this? Oh yeah, this is the Canadian version of the drills when right. Brent plays drums. <laughs> So we, um, he's in Winnipeg now, I think, but, um, we, uh, I just got the video together and he sent me footage of him playing drums. It's a quarantine video cause we can't play together. So he's playing drums on his friend's son's kid in the basement in Winnipeg in the video. And I'm in LA and, uh, Dan's in Burbank and I mean, he's close, but you know, we're still quarantining. Um, basically, uh, the song came to me. Like I said earlier, I was driving around and I'm, this thing right on the money's coming to me and, I, and all these lyrics are coming to me and, I, and these melodies. And that's when that's usually when it happens when I'm driving. But then um, what put me under the gun was uh, Chris had mixed the first uh, Stupid Good Lookings record, volume one. He had mixed that. We had hung out. Actually, we met in Rio while he was doing. No, we met lots of times before, but we hung out in Rio he was uh, broadcast mixing Aerosmith at Rock and Rio the night before Bon Jovi played. So we hung out. There you go. How, how come I'm not hearing you? Because I muted it. I, I always mute because I have oh. a squeaky chair. And so if oh. I don't mute it, all you hear is squeakity, squeakity, squeak. <laughs> so basically, um, he said, hey, I hear you got a solo band. And I'm like, yeah, I do. And he goes, well, let me hear some of the stuff. So I sent him a bunch of stuff, and he got really excited about it. And he mixed the volume one. We're in the process of mi mixing volume two. But in the interim, um, he uh, called me up and said, hey, this is 2018 October. And he says, hey, I'm going into Capitol Records to do a master class for Mix with the Masters on how to um, – how to track a band live off the floor. Uh, do the drills want to do it? And I'm like, well, I'd be an idiot to say no, right? So we did it. Me, Dan, and Brent went in. And he said, bring three songs. So I was under the gun. 
I had a night, I had two ideas of old songs that would have been good to record, but I needed a new song. So that put me under the gun to finish Right on the Money. So I went into the studio and I started playing Right on the Money. And even Dan and Brent were like, dude, that's cool. Let's do it. So the interesting part about it was Chris got so excited he came out on the floor because we were all very um, kind of interpreting it at that moment as three different musicians because we hadn't rehearsed it. We hadn't done any pre, uh, pre-production. And Chris came in and goes, hey, you know you change the tempo and you do that heavy bit in the middle? Instead of going straight into this last chorus, let's do, let's do this drum thing. So that was Chris's idea. And we just ran with it. And, and Brent didn't know what he was doing. He was just kind of doing it. And then all of a sudden, we're all looking at each other. And then I scream, like the scream that you hear, and go into the solo, which is the solo you hear from on that, that day recording it. So I'm really excited about the track. I'm really excited how it came out. So uh, that's the story. That's, and it's a great track. Okay, so let me, let me ask you then about that. Since the recording process was sort of fortuitous and it just sort of came up, serendipitous, Mm-hmm. Uh, do you want to sort of, as you do volume two, maybe approach it that way and say, hey guys, let's just go in the studio, kick some ideas, we'll just sort of lay it down live and whatever feels right is what the song is rather than being very cerebral and go, I need this part here and I need that part. I mean, is that a, maybe a way of, of approaching it? I'm going to tell you something. You're a genius because that's how we did it. <laughs> Even volume one, there's a different drummer. On volume one, there's a different drummer on every track. So it was basically, whether it was Abe Jr., Abe Laboreal Jr., or Taylor Hawkins, or Glenn Sobel from Alice Cooper, we, we went into the studio. Sometimes we were in the same studio with different drummers, and they played the same kit. So, but that was, I wanted it to feel like when Taylor Hawkins came in, he was in the band for an hour and a half. This is how the song goes. What are you feeling? And then we're all, I'm like, hey, let's do this in the second chorus. And Dan goes, well, let's do this in the third chorus. And then Taylor, Taylor's like, yeah, but let's do this right before the last chorus. And I'm like, I don't care. Just go crazy at the end. And then you have a couple of takes. And then at the end of the day, you've got it recorded. I, I do uh, another guitar as, a, as an overdub later and sing it and it's done. But the same approach was taken to uh, volume two, which... Uh, we have Tommy Lee on this record, uh, Ray Luzier from Quorn, um, Gary Novak, uh, Ryan McMillan, who's played with like Matchbox 20 and stuff, and I'm missing somebody. Kenny Arnoff, did I say that? No, you didn't so, say Kenny Arnoff. And don't forget Ray Luzier from David Lee Roth. That's, that's a very important yeah, So great. He came in, and we actually recorded Ray and Ryan at 606 Studios in, uh, in Northridge, it was Foo Fighters Studios. So we, um, it's just, it's just been a really, I love drummers and I love drumming. I'm just a huge fan. I just suck at it. Otherwise I'd be Prince and playing all the instruments, but I don't want it to be that. I wanted to be a gang. I wanted to be three or four guys just rocking out and giving it, it gives it that urgency. Like I've, I've worked on so many other people's records. My favorite recordings, are when it was like three guys live off the floor and just and the my real favorite ones the top of the list are going to tape because you're not going into pro tools where you can just edit and chop up and copy and paste you're going to tape so going to tape adds an another level of urgency to you don't want to be the guy that screws up so you hear that nervous energy 
And I mean, you know, my favorite records were recorded like that. So I'm just a huge fan of it. Yeah, you're right. And and we we've sort of lost that spontaneity and that that fear of screwing up because now you just fly stuff. In fact, most people they'll they'll record three notes and that'll yeah. be the whole session. You're like, "Wait, you just did you played for 10 seconds." Yeah, but it'll be a 6-minute song by the time they're done. It's like, "No." No, yeah. play play the whole fucking six minutes song for a you know? And I've worked with producers that are so like from left to right, like the left being uh, actually left left and right is the good way to put it. But they're so different. Some guys are like, you know, you go in and I, I let the, the engineer kind of lead the way. So um, I play a chorus and I'm like, so uh, are we playing all the choruses or are you copy and pasting? And he goes, no, let's play them all. You're quick. And I'm like, great. And then you have another producer. I work. I worked with uh, uh, Tony Visconti on on the last Harry Farrell record, and he was the opposite. He goes, you know, he wants to play all the choruses, and then don't even tune. Just do, we'll do the, the the right side with the guitar a little out, so it's not perfect. And there's an energy there too. There's a spirit. In that, as long as it doesn't get too chorusy and uh, modulated, it's it's a great way to capture uh, energy for for me. Anyway, oh, absolutely, so. and 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 we're getting off the topic here. But if you listen to the early Van Halen or the early Kiss or the early yes. Sabbath yes. or even the early Aerosmith, a, a, some of the best parts are these mistakes. Sometimes the drummer's too fast. Sometimes they're off beat. Yeah. Sometimes the 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 bass. And if you take that out of whatever song, out of Sweet Emotion, out of Rock and Roll, you go, it's not the same song anymore. That's Even even if you put headphones on and listen to uh, Dream On, which is a smash, those guitar players, Brad and Joe, they're kind of almost playing different songs in the chorus because they wanted to kind of ping-pong back and forth. Oh, yeah. But anyway, that's what, makes, that's what I think makes some of those 70s and 80s albums really special and and now we've gotten a little bit too antiseptic and too controlled and it's just like oh just get back to to that but um in terms of yourself uh you know obviously you're in bon jovi and the band has uh is moving forward and there's no farewell tour so but but at some point do you sort of have to prepare to be on your own and go okay well the band's retired now i need to go be phil do you see that as an eventuality where you have to build up a solo career or and have, or do you say, hey, if John retires, I'll just go be a studio guy. I'm good at that. Why not? Well, I mean, the studio thing is scary now because the, the budgets have slashed. Like, <laughs> if they exist at all. Yeah, in the 2006 to 2000, I mean, even 2003 to 2012, they were, you could make a really good living just doing sessions. And then, again, with Pro Tools coming in and killing everybody, they're like, uh, I, I was getting calls like, hey, man, yeah, we were going to use you last week, but it just wasn't in the budget. And I'm like, well, what was your budget? Did you, you didn't even, why don't you call and say, we got 500 bucks. Can you come in? Instead of saying, hey, coffee guy, you play a little guitar, right? Why don't you come in and we'll Pro Tools it to death so it doesn't have any life? Like, I mean... <laughs> You know what I mean? So um, that, that was kind of frustrating too. But I mean, everybody's felt it. Musicians, producers, you know, producers that used to make $150,000 on a record. Now they're like, hey man, we got 30 grand. 
but the band's coming from Pittsburgh and they need a place to stay. So we need to put that in that 30 grand, you know, accommodations. And it's like, and per diem and all this stuff. And, and they're like, uh, you called the wrong guy. But then all the calls are that like that. But um, I, for me, to answer your question, uh, I feel like uh, I'm ready for anything. Like I've always been doing the drills, been doing it since 2003. It was just always underground. At one point, it was it was beneath what I had to do with another band I had going on with my ex-wife. And then when that ended, I put more time into it. And then Bon Jovi happened. So it's kind of like a backseat. Hey, I'm going to put this record out. No, you're not. Um, we're going on tour. I'm like, oh. So everything gets put on hold, right? It's on the back burner. So now's a good time to get the drills going. It's a good time to get, I mean, COVID sucked because we were on tour in the UK. And instead of doing eight shows in the UK and then going to, to uh, Europe to do eight shows, we had to come home. So go home. And when we were supposed to go to Amsterdam and play a, a concert in, in, in Holland, right? So, okay, we're going home tomorrow. That's just, and then you're sitting around and I quarantined away from my family for two weeks. But I'm prepared for anything because not, like John has said to me, dude, I, I'm, I'm going to go for another 20 years. I'm, I, I can do this for another 20 years. So, great. But I'm not worried about him retiring. And not that I'm worried about anything, but I think more of a possibility, even though everybody will deny it. I think, what are the biggest selling concert tours? Reunions. So enough, if enough money comes down the pike, you know, who knows? Maybe John and Richie will uh, kiss some makeup and then I'm, yeah. I'm uh, washing cars. You listen, I'm going to be honest with this. I'm a fan of Bon Jovi and I would love to see Richie there. Don't get me wrong, but I would actually prefer to see it in a sort of Iron Maiden kind of thing where they keep you and bring Richie back right. because I really think that, that, that your youthful energy to the band and your performance really adds a lot because I, I love what you do and when you look at Yannick Gers with Iron Maiden and you go, wow, there's six guys on the stage, oh my god, but you know what? You've had Bobby Bandieri, you've had other guys, so why yeah. not Richie and you? I, yeah. I, I think that would that would be... I think fans would love that. <laughs> yes. Well, listen, I'm a fan, and I would love that. I, I, I anyway, I, who knows? But for now, you're there, and and I love that. Um, talk to me a little bit about your guitar playing because you've done, you know, Kelly Clarkson, you've done Frozen Ghost, and I'm looking at some of the Tommy Lee, you've done Melee, you've done uh, Bon Jovi, all different styles. So you have to adapt. Talk to me about adapting and. And how do you go into a session with these different artists? Do you look at Kelly Clarkson and say, I'm just going to give her a rock guitar and too bad if she doesn't like it? Or do you sort of have to go, okay, I need to listen to what she's doing. I need to adjust. I need to change the strings. I need a different... How do you approach each session for these different styles? That's a really good question. And but the answer for me is pretty simple. I, I don't... I, don't um, I go in not thinking about the artist as much as thinking about the song. So say, come in and play on this song. My job as a guitar player is to take that song to another level, to make the chorus explode, to make getting to the chorus a little journey. So that's that's my job. Whether it's Alice Cooper or Avril Lavigne, it's basically um, that mentality. That said, I don't have to, I love all kinds of music and I am a songwriter. So my, my musicality 
um, peeks through in everything that I do. Everything that I record, you can kind of hear that, wow, he must write songs. Like, I remember one, I'm not going to say the artist, but I was working on one project, and in the chorus, I thought that the, the melody could use a little support as a counter melody. So I put the counter melody in, and for the rest of the day, everybody was walking around singing the counter melody instead of the melody of the chorus. So I thought that was a, hey, good job. Maybe too good. <laughs> so it's kind of it's kind of like a, a you know kind of like a you have to find the right place to put the right thing. Right. Kind of like a puzzle sometimes. Well, okay, but, so, so, but let me ask you about that then. In terms of putting the right thing at the right place, do do most of the artists sort of work the same way where they send you the song ahead of time and say, okay, learn it, and then come in with with a preconceived notion? Or do most of them say, okay, show up to the studio, you'll, we'll put it up on the monitors, take a listen, and then, I mean, how much of it do they just sort of let you have your own freedom, and how much do they say, hey, listen, we're paying you to do this, so come on, dance for us, do what we got to do, and, you know, like, do you get to be creative at all? Oh, yeah, um, but yeah, you, it did sound, you made it sound like kind of being like a performing monkey, which sometimes it is well, like that. Yeah, but yeah, but I'm, and I, I did mean it like that, and I didn't mean to be disparaging about it, but sometimes no, 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 it's no, like, no. hey, I'm paying you a thousand bucks, fucking dance for me. You know? We all joke about it, right? We all right. joke about it. Musicians know, if they're, if they're working on a record of that caliber, we know the money that we're making, and we know why we're making it. So that, that keeps it simple. Um, but that was a really good question because I feel like uh, in the beginning I would I would get the MP3 in advance of the demo and I would and I would chart it out or learn it and I'd come in and play on it. But while I was playing on it, or even before I was playing on it, the drummer, say it was Josh Freeze or Kenny Aronoff or Abel Boyle Jr., he would come in and then Chris Cheney or or uh, Paul Bushnell would come in and play bass and they would chart it on the spot. Didn't hear a note chart it on the spot, and then we'd all go in and play it. And I thought, I'm going to do that next time. I'm just going to chart it when they chart it out. I don't want to hear anything in advance. And what I figured out is that when you come in, you don't hear anything in advance. And there's three world-class musicians. I always feel like the worst guy in the room, by the way. Uh, there's three world-class musicians writing charts of song, and then they go in and they rock it out. I feel like... If you don't listen to it in advance and you learn it with the band, it adds a, a, a distinct character of instincts. You're, you're just being instinctive instead of working something out on the drive over listening to it you know, on, on your stereo. So that instinct is way more exciting than working something out. Oh, I, I, I think so. Listen. And might, might this might sound bad, but I don't think rock and roll should be cerebral. I think it should be guttural, and it should be you should feel it. And, yes. And, and some sometimes, as you get more famous, you know, the first album you don't have a budget, you don't have time, so you, it's all guttural. You just figure. By the time you get to the third, fourth, fifth album, you're like, oh, I we should put this here, and we should put that there. And then fans go, man, their 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 fifth album's not as good as the first couple. What happened? And it's like it well, was, that's what they weren't hungry. Yes, they weren't hungry, and they were overthinking it. Um, uh, by the way, in terms of world-class musician, because I, I, I see who you've played with, and I hear who you've played with, and you just said it sort of jokingly, but you are in that league now where if somebody wants a great guitar thing, they're going to phone you. But 
how do you sort of see yourself in all of this? Because you are at that level. You are an Abe. You are a Liberty DeVito. You are one of these guys. Yeah, I, uh, I mean. It's the Canadian in you, right? It is, man. People <laughs> are like, man, you're too polite. Are you Canadian? <laughs> You really are. Uh, I, I want to. We've done interviews before, but I've never asked you about Alice Cooper's Brutal Planet. You got to play on that. First of all, how much of it did you play on the whole thing? Um, okay, so Bob Marlet was the producer, right? And he he played all the rhythm guitars and all the bass, and he was looking at someone to come in and fill in holes or sparkle stuff up. Pixie dust is what we call it. So. Um, he was talking to Rob Zombie, or no, Alice was talking to Rob Zombie, and Rob said, you gotta use this guy, you gotta call this guy Phil X, he's playing my record, he's great. So, Alice gave Bob my number, and he said, hey, come in, I got a couple of songs for you to play on. And, uh, he was very, I don't know who you are, so you can't be that good, kind of thing, at the time. This was, this was 2000. And like the way I talked about it in the video that I put out a couple of weeks ago is I came in and he goes, look, I played all the bass and the rhythm guitars myself. I'm just looking for stuff on top go and, you know, record. So I play something and I'm thinking out of the gate, I went from it, was, it went from being it went from being intimidated to Fuck, I got this and then deliver. Right. So the delivery became, oh, my God. I got nine more songs you can play on. Can you finish today and come back on Friday? And that's how it went. So I tell people um, half of it is being amazing and not just great, but amazing at what you do. And the other half is delivering when you need to step up. Like someone's going to knock on that door and you open the door. You got to put your best foot forward, bring your A game, whatever you want to call it, and deliver. And that's when you get the call back. You know, that's that how that, that's how I think it works. And it was an incredible album because it, it is sort of Alice Cooper's heavy metal album. I mean, it really yeah. it really is. And it, it's interesting that, that, that that's the way it went down. Um, let me just quickly ask you a couple of Bon Jovi things. Uh, 2020 was supposed to come out in May. Back in November, I was in New York City walking down the street and I literally bumped into Obie O'Brien. And I said, what are what? you doing here? He goes, oh, well, we're, we're in town to listen to the new album. This was November 15th of yeah. uh, 2019. And he goes, oh, we're, we're in town to listen to the, the demos of the new Bon Jovi album and blah, blah, blah. It'll be coming out later. Um, the album's been pulled and it's going to be released who knows when. Yeah. Uh, what was that like working on this and then knowing, ah, now it's been pulled off. Do you think it would have been a good idea to put it out and have people like me that are sitting at home doing nothing going... I can listen to this for six months, and by the time the tour rolls around Montreal in whatever May of 2021, I'll know all the songs. I'm good. I think see, I, I I look at it like you. Right. Um, the only reason to to throw the drills into the mix. The only reason uh, Volume Two hasn't come out yet is because it's in mix mode. It's been recorded. It's in mix mode. Everybody's busy. There's other stuff going on. There's other uh, elements against. That aren't that have nothing to do with me to to make this finished and you know the artwork sitting there the music sitting there it's gonna get mixed eventually and come out so we that's why we put out right on the money which isn't even on volume two it was just a standalone single to get people like, hey the drills are doing stuff you know that kind of thing so and the video is coming out next week 
and that's a quarantine fan video. Um, the Bon Jovi thing for me, uh, I agree. I I would have been. Uh, hey, the record's still coming out. Oh, hold on, I gotta ignore that. I don't know how to ignore that. It'll it'll stop in a couple of seconds. Okay. This will be the uh, the funny part of the video. Cause I'm just gonna throw this up when we're done without. Uh... But yeah, I I feel. Like oh no! I it's still going. Delay. I don't see the delay. Hold on, kill it. If I turn that down, you still hear me? Yeah, I still hear you. Okay, I turned down the ring. Um, if you, oh wait, answering this call will place your current call on hold. No, I'm kidding. Um, so. Honestly, I think the record could still came out. That's my personal opinion. And you're right. People have something in this crazy trying time that makes them happy. You know, oh, the new Bon Jovi record came out. I can't wait to listen to it. It's it's very exciting. And we've got a great soundtrack going on in the back. Now, is that another interview that you have to get to? Yes. Then I should let you go because that seems to be the, 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 the nice thing to do. But uh, always a pleasure. And... I was going to go see the Bon Jovi Brian Adams tour. <sighs> Dude, I was so excited for Brian Adams. I was going to watch him every night. He's amazing. And Canadian. And Canadian, which which is what we need. But listen, let, let us uh, do this again at some point and, and do a whole uh, discography and discussion. Uh, let me, whoops, what, what here? Uh, where is it? Right on the money is the, uh, and, and, and the dog just walked in the room. So there you go. Uh, isn't this fun when you do that? It's not like the professional stuff, like when you're at Q104 in New York, where it's all, you know. So you got, you got, you got headphones. I like the really nice microphone with the compressor. I go, man, my well, voice. I've got, the, I've got a blue Yeti mic over here, and uh, See? and these are these are the Audio Technicas. They fucking sound fantastic. Wait a minute. I think I got these too. I use I record with those. Yeah, they're, they're the best, and they're and this guy just walked. Yeah, they, I think they're the exact same ones. Love Anyway, it's the greatest one. So I, I guess uh, go do that interview. But uh, the drills are right on the money out now via Golden Robot Records. It sounds absolutely spectacular. And as soon as I figure out that opening rift, I'm going to text you and say, aha, it's this song. <laughs> no, you do that. I'm curious now. You got me curious. All right. Thank you. thank you so much, man. Thank you. Uh, always, always a pleasure to, to support. And uh, you know what? I, I was going to wait a couple of days. I'm going to go actually work on this now and throw it up tonight. And then I'll do the podcast thing in a couple of weeks. Awesome, man. Thank you so much. Merci. Appreciate it. Bonsoir. See you, buddy. Cheers. Take care. This has been Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. For more exclusive content and interviews, subscribe on iHeartRadio, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, on YouTube, and many more. Follow Mitch on all the socials, especially Twitter, at Mitch LaFon, and on Instagram, at Mitch underscore LaFon. Get your Mitch merch now at loudtracks.com slash Mitch.